You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Nobody likes hospitals, but I like them less than most. I think it's because my father was a doctor, an oncologist, and when I was young, he'd drag me along while he did his rounds. He'd park me in the cafeteria, a fluorescent purgatory that reeked of burnt coffee and fear, then go see his patients. Be back in 20 minutes, he'd say. An hour or two later, he'd show up, apologetic. One of his patients had died. They always died, and they always died in hospitals. So, my eight-year-old brain concluded, if I just avoided hospitals, I would never die. It was airtight logic, and aside from a broken leg at age 17, that's what I managed to do. Until one warm August evening, not that long ago, when I found myself in the emergency room. My friend Michael had driven me there, as I sat in the passenger seat, doubled over in pain. At first, I dismissed it as indigestion, but this was unlike any indigestion I had experienced before. They took some x-rays and CT scans, and a few long minutes later, the ER doctor walked into the examination room grim-faced. Something was wrong, though exactly what kind of wrong he couldn't say. The lines of worry on his face sent a spike of panic through me. A surgeon was en route. They had to interrupt his dinner party, he said, thus layering my terror with a film of guilt. Just wait here, he instructed, as if I were going anywhere with an ivy dangling from one arm and a hospital gown wrapped around me, though wrapped was an overstatement, and for that matter so was gown. Little separated me from the chilly, sterile air of the examination room. I was shivering partly from the cold, mostly from fear. Is it cancer? Something worse? What, I wondered, is worse than cancer? There must be something worse than cancer. I was pondering what this might be when a nurse walked in. She was about my age and, judging from the accent, originally from the Caribbean or maybe West Africa. She leaned over to draw blood and must have smelled my fear because she paused, maneuvered close to my ear, and said, slowly and clearly, Words I will never forget. Have you found your God yet? Eric Weiner was a correspondent for National Public Radio. He's been based in New Delhi, Jerusalem, and Tokyo, and reported for more than 30 countries. His first book was The Geography of Bliss. His new book is Man Seeks God, My Flirtations with the Divine. Thank you for joining me, Eric. I'm happy to be here, Rick. Eric, what was the outcome of your diagnosis? Well, it's a bit embarrassing, actually, but it was it was not um, anything terribly serious. It was a very severe case of gas um, brought on by stress of finishing a previous book. And it took them three days to determine this, though. So it was a stressful three days, and eventually uh, I was discharged from the hospital. Well, once you were discharged, this question uh, that the nurse asked you uh, got stuck in your brain, didn't it? It did, um, and perhaps it was timing because I'm wondering if, if she had asked me the question at a different stage in my life, you know, the question, have you found your God yet, I probably would have dismissed it. I probably would have returned to my everyday secular life to what the Chinese call the world of dust, you know, our everyday existence. But for whatever reason, I'm still not exactly sure what that reason is, uh, you're right, the question did burrow into my brain and it wouldn't go away. 
one of the things that I, I love about this book is the the main character, who is you. And, and I think that you do such a great job of uh, describing yourself and putting us in your mind and asking questions that all of us have asked and making kind of observations um, bringing coalescing thoughts that we've all uh, that have all passed through our brains in much vaguer states and you talk about the kind of different kinds of spirituality we have in America the different kinds of religion and I'd like you to just to just kind of go through you know your first pass of the different kinds of religion because yeah, I think that's where a lot of us well, are. Well, when you, when you say different kinds of religion, do you mean different kinds of religion or, or different approaches to spirituality? Different approaches to spirituality. Yeah. Well, I think that that there are basically, what, three, maybe four categories. You know, one I would call the, the true believers. And these are, you know, I guess someone called them fundamentalists. Um, they probably wouldn't see themselves that way. But these are, uh, in this country at least, for the most part Christians, but not exclusively, uh, who have very certain faith, unshakable, uh, and they're not much interested in hearing about other religions. Um, then on the other end of the spectrum, you have the atheists. Um, I call them in the book angry atheists um, because sometimes I think they, they are, not always, but often. Uh, and they are equally certain, but they are certain that God does not exist. Now, in this vast middle ground, you have uh, two groups, I would say. You have uh, the spiritual but not religious, and you've probably heard this term, especially in California. People describe themselves as spiritual but not religious. You know, I'm not sure exactly what that means. Does that mean you believe in God but you don't want to do anything about it? Does that mean that you really are religious but you don't want to call yourself such because you don't want to be associated with, um, with the true believers, uh, for instance? And where does that leave though someone like myself, um, who is curious about spirituality, um, who is not certain about God's existence, but wouldn't quite describe myself as, a, as an agnostic either. I, I find that term agnostic inadequate. You know, it, it means literally one without knowledge, so I guess that's me, but it implies a certain passivity. Agnostics um, don't know if God exists, and I don't think they particularly care. They're, they're waiting if they were to receive some sign, a text message from the big guy, you know, one morning, they would say, okay, well, there's the text message, God does exist, but, but they're not necessarily active. And so there's this other category that I think I fall into, and I, and I think many people do. It's, they're sometimes called the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, people without any religious affiliation, but who are not atheists and who are active They've also been called questers. You know, a quest personality is a term coined by one psychologist to describe people who are very actively seeking and who kind of thrive uh, not on certainty but on doubt, in fact. For you, uh, and when anything that involves actively seeking involves traveling, which is yeah. something you're good at and enjoy. I do. You know, and people said to me, well, do you really need to travel to find God and, and to find a spiritual path? Can't can you do it all in your living room? Well, yeah, I suppose you could, because ultimately this is an, a, an inward journey, right? But for me, the path to the inward is through the outward, and it's it's traveling, you know. And one of my my favorite quotes that sort of sums up my attitude toward travel is from the American writer Henry Miller, who said one's destination is never a place but a new way of seeing things. And I like that, and that does describe my attitude toward travel. And, you know, I'm not the first person to to travel many thousands of miles 
um, to find something inside themselves. It, it, it shakes us up, you know, and, and it, it, it disorients us in a good way because we're, when we stay home, we're so fixed and stuck that we're not able to, to see things as clearly as we can when we're, when we're a bit out of our element. And that Henry Miller uh, quote has an a implication of spirituality in it as well. It does. Well, a new way of seeing things. You know, that is ultimately what spirituality is about. It's, it's not necessarily about becoming a different person, although that often is the result. It's about changing your orientation a bit, uh, shifting your alignment. And these are terms that the Sufis and others I've explored use. They, they talk about alignment. Um, they talk about viewing things, seeing things clearly, seeing with your heart. Um, so it's, it is often about seeing more than it is about, you know, changing yourself. That's, you know, you can change yourself by going to the gym, for instance. But what you're changing in, in the spiritual quest is your orientation and, as Henry Miller said, Henry Miller said, your way of seeing the world. I love the quote from Pascal that man is a God-shaped hole. Right. <laughs> I, think... I always think of donuts when I hear that. I, know. <laughs> I thought it seems like, you know, if a donut shop sort of teamed up with a philosopher, you know, you'd have the, the God-shaped hole. Yeah. And that, that, um, that's, a, that's a, a, good, a good quote and a good description, I think, for, for that emptiness that a lot of us feel in, in the middle of our being. Um, although perhaps these days we wouldn't call it a God-shaped hole. We might call it something else. But I, the term stuck with me. You you ask uh, how many uh, gods there are, and you uh, come up with a, a number. Yeah, a large number. I was surprised, weren't you? 9,945, I believe, um, with new ones being formed all the time. There are a lot of religions out there. You know, we may think that there's just, you know, the big three, you know, big three monotheistic ones, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Um, in fact, that is just scratching the surface. There are all kinds of religions, you know, often variations of one another, um, but just a tremendous smorgasbord of spiritual options out there. Now, when you decided to go explore these spiritual options, um, you, like many people, I, I, you talk about in, employing what you call the rational choice theory. Talk about the rational choice theory. I well, like that. Well, this is one theory that's out there bandied about, about how we choose a religion. And it is, I believe, economists, of course, who came up with the theory. And it's essentially that we make a rational choice. We look at the costs of a religion, the benefits, and when the benefits outweigh the costs, we, we choose that one, much the way we might choose a car or a breakfast cereal. You know, it sounds good, but I don't think it's an adequate explanation for how we make our religious and spiritual choices. Because, I mean, to be honest, we're often looking for something that we don't really know that we're looking for. I mean, unlike with the breakfast cereal or a car, we know there's certain features we're looking for. But on a spiritual quest, there's that, that God-shaped hole or whatever you want to call it, but you don't know exactly what you're looking for until you find it. So I don't think it is entirely a rational process. You know, it, 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 it's, it's different. As uh, Donald Rumsfeld put it, the unknown unknowns. Yeah. What you, and, and I think Rumsfeld and I agree on this. It's probably the only thing we agree on. But I think, um, I think he's right. Uh, you know, there are things that we know that we don't know. And then, of course, there are things that we don't know that we don't know. Um, and that's that's what the spiritual search is about. You're, you're looking for something, but you don't know what you're looking for, often until you find it. 
Now, religions do have a, a job, though. They have, you know, something that we really, the, the part of our brain that needs religion, and that seems to be pretty scientifically agreed on now, that there is a part of our brain that says you must have some kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, I know there's a lot of neuroscience of religion. Neuroscience is very trendy these days. Anything involving an fMRI scan and the brain scans are, are very trendy. Um you know, the problem I have with the, this is sort of scientific, the scientific explanation for the religious instinct is that it almost always is assembled as a put down of religion. In other words, it's it's saying, look, there's a biochemical reason that we have this irrational addiction to religion. And the next step is, well, we just have to work to break this, that it's that it's that it's unfortunate that we need religion, that it's some kind of vestige like, you know, a tailbone or an appendix that, that we no longer need. And and I, I just think that's wrong. I think, um, you know, there may be a biochemical or neuroscientific um, cause for our religious instinct, but that doesn't mean it's bad or outdated. I think there is a place for religion, for what I call good religion in today's world. Well, uh, one of the things that... Uh, you say, is there's basically three answers, questions that religion has to answer. And I'd like you to ask those three questions and talk a little bit about your, you know, narrowing it down to that. Right. I think that's a pretty good precis. The big three. Yeah. Yeah. The big three are where do we come from? What happens when we die? And how should we live our lives in the meantime, basically? And all three, I'm sorry, all three questions are ones that all religions attempt to answer. And that I feel science uh, doesn't have adequate answers for, at least not yet. And I have to be honest, though, it's really the third question, how should we live our lives, that interests me the most. I think the first two, where do we come from, what happens when we die, you know, who knows if we're ever going to be able to answer those. And I think religion can perform a valuable role in the meantime by focusing on that third one, how should we live our lives. And that's what we're all looking for, I think, is a little bit of wisdom. Now, uh, as you wrote this book, uh, you are traveling. I'd like you to just talk a little bit about, you know, you're setting up the plan for this book because this has got to be, you know, a pretty serious undertaking. I mean, it you was. do some some serious traveling to and places. some serious reading as well. Right. I, I did both. Um, you know, it was, I did it two ways. I did it first by planning everything meticulously and then by throwing away that plan when I arrived in these places <laughs> because that's what you have to do as a traveler. You can't go unprepared. You know, so if I'm going to Kathmandu, I want names of people on the ground. This is the old journalistic instinct in me, right? I want contacts, friends of friends of friends. And then when I get on the ground, I've got to be flexible enough to change those plans. Um, and to, if, if I'm being steered by some invisible force in another direction, I have to be willing to, to go in that direction. Uh, I did read a lot. Uh, I read William James and I, I read Karen Armstrong and... And I read the the sacred texts of of these eight religions, um, but I wanted it to be more than just a book exercise, and that's where the travel comes in. I wanted it to be experiential, and I wanted to not just be a objective journalist, you know, who doesn't get involved. I, as you as you probably know, I got very involved, and I was willing to make a complete another another fool out of myself at times um, in the service of something bigger. Well, I think what's what interested me is uh, the approach you take on a on a prose level which is both really it's funny and self-deprecating and kind of a little bit dark 
but I'm a little bit dark. <laughs> you know, I, I am. I mean, I, I'm pretty upfront about that. I've, I've, I think most comedians, you know, from Robin Williams and others, you know, they, they, it's always in tandem, humor and depression. And, and I have both, you know, I, I certainly have a sense of humor. I like to think, but I have suffered from depression in my life. Um, a sort of low grade, but fairly serious depression off and on. And, um, you know, there's always, I think in a spiritual journey, there is an attempt, uh, to shed yourself of some misery, obviously. I don't know anyone who's just ecstatically happy, you know, in a sort of California way who then, then goes on a spiritual quest. Um, it's usually stems from some crisis or some emptiness inside of you. Well, as you say, the the emphasis on uh, fasting in religion suggests that uh, religious experiences uh, don't thrive and don't happen necessarily on a full stomach. No, no. And that was a disappointment to me because I love food and I love eating. <laughs> um, I think it was Carl Jung who actually theorized that that's why we are less spiritual than our medieval forefathers is because we're just over nutritioned when it's not a word nutritioned we're overfed basically um and it sort of dulls the brain and dulls these spiritual impulses yeah but you're right i mean uh, from the indian religion of the jains to uh muslims fast of course on ramadan jews fast on, on yom kippur um just about every religion has some form of of fasting um it, it's a cleansing process and it's also difficult and religion is ultimately not about the easy way out. It's it's a difficult path. It's deliberately taking the difficult choice. Yeah, which is why I find it interesting that of all this plethora of religious and spiritual options available to us, the most popular ones are not these hedonistic cults, and I do dive into at least one of those in this book. They are the tougher ones. Calvinism, of all things, is enjoying a, a resurgence in some parts of the country. And Buddhism, not easy. Very popular, but not easy. If you've ever tried to sit and and watch your breath silently for 10 seconds, you know it's not easy. But people are drawn to it because um, we're looking for something more from religion, more than just this, you know, smiley face happiness that we can get in Vegas or Disney World. I love the, you mentioned Jung, and I love the Jung quote that the religion is what assures us that we will not be overwhelmed by the monsters of the universe. Yeah, and it is a way of keeping them at bay, and it has been for a long time. The question is, um, with science as the primary gestalt these days, is there uh, is there room for religion to keep those monsters at bay, or is it is it a weakness? Is it a character flaw? I mean, to be honest, in in the circles I travel, sort of East Coast journalistic circles, um, most people I know do view religion as a character flaw, as um, something people use because they find the world scary and almost that there's something childish about it. And and I suppose I felt that way a bit in the beginning of the book, but by the end, given all the amazing people I met out there, I've, I've changed my views about that. I don't think there's anything um, childish about religion, um, and I don't think it's a character flaw to be religious. Well, I think one of the things that I, I loved about this book is all the characters you introduce. As a, as a writer, you really uh, do a great job of you know, bringing up these characters. And the one character who very much interested me and was in the background and in the foreground throughout the book was your depression. And hmm. Was it a character? I suppose <laughs> it was. An unwanted house guest, I believe I referred to him, it, at one point. Um, yeah, it was always there. I mean, this isn't a book about depression. There mm -hmm. are wonderful no. uh, 
books out there like The Noonday Demon and others that really are are memoirs of depression. But it's I felt it would have been not somehow dishonest to not at least make my depression a minor character mm-hmm. in the book. Um, because I think that you know we do treat depression these days biochemically and we, we view depression as you know something that's just a deviation from the norm and really has no positive side to it. But throughout history, there's just been this idea of the sort of spiritual emergency that if you're depressed or or experiencing um, mental illness in some form, that it is like when you have a pain in your elbow or in your leg, and it's a warning sign that um, that something's wrong, that something's off. And the idea with the spiritual emergency is that we are depressed because we're not living the kind of life we should be, or we haven't filled that God-shaped hole, or something other than than just our synapses aren't firing right. Well, your synapses, once you got your synapses firing in the proper order, your travel papers uh, right. uh, marshaled, your books uh, read and underlined seriously because you're a serious book underliner. Which Compulsive I... underliner, yes. <laughs> you, the first place you stopped was to get the California experience of Sufism. And <laughs> yeah. Well, we're, we're talking to Californians now, right? Yeah. So. Um, <laughs> I have to be very careful what I say here. No, go right ahead. All My right. audience is Santa Cruz. Let it rip. All right. Well, I you know I signed up for for Sufi camp. You know, I wanted to tackle Islam right away because it's the big you know eight hundred pound god in the room. You know that sitting there, we don't often talk about it. And I and I, I chose the Sufis because I thought they they appealed to me, the sort of mystical arm of Islam. And when I saw the ad for Sufi camp in Mendocino, I was like. I got to go. Sufi in camp. Plus, they, they promised wine. It said, come drink with the beloved. And there was an illustration on the brochure of this chunky wine goblet. And, uh, you know, so I thought there would be like a nice Symphondel in it for me at the very <laughs> least. Um, and, I mean, should I tell you a bit about the experience there? I mean, Yeah, just a little. It, it, a little taste of it is it was, it was fun. It was interesting. But I felt, as I describe it, like I had fallen down the New Age rabbit hole. You know, where it was just this melange of a little bit of this, a little bit of that, um, bit of Sufism thrown in, but not a huge amount. And I realized that that's sort of the problem with the New Age movement is uh, it is just skimming on the surface and it's mixing things together while not fully understanding each of the components. And I sort of made a, a decision at that point, and there was no wine, by the way, that was a metaphor. Um, I made a decision at that point to go to the source of these religions as much as possible mm-hmm. um, and to to get out of Northern California. Um, yeah. So that so that actually changed your, your travel plans? Then. It did. Oh, I mean, interesting. some people were suggesting I could have written the whole book without leaving Marin County, and I suppose that's true, but, um, <laughs> but there, there is value in going to the source and, and getting out of this sort of new age tableau. Well, you went to Istanbul, which is, that's a very interesting experience. Talk, tell us a little bit about where, once we get something without uh, the tapas style servings of religion. Um, I really enjoyed Istanbul and and I was in other places in Turkey. Um, I was fortunate that I had a wonderful guide there named Dilek, who is both a Sufi and a tour guide by profession. So Mm. she really was a guide. And she opened uh, doors for me, and I'm very grateful to her. Um, I I wanted to turn like a dervish. You know, the Sufis are are most famous probably for for two things: for Rumi, the 13th century mystical poet who's still loved and cherished today, and for the whirling dervishes. And I dove pretty deep into both. I went to Rumi's um, 
well, where he died and where he did most of his writing, Konya, in the middle of, of Turkey. And in Istanbul, I actually found a teacher who was willing to teach me how to turn like a dervish, which did not go so well at first, I have to say. It's very difficult. Have you tried it? No, no. It's, I, yeah. it's, I'm not a dancer. You don't put Well, I'm, I'm not a dancer either, and <laughs> I guess they don't really consider it dancing. It's, it's prayer in motion is mm. what it is, and it's amazing to watch because it is both very active. They're spinning so fast around in their axis and orbiting around each other in an almost planetary way, but it's also contemplative. I mean, if you look in the eyes of the dervishes, you will see this peace which I have never experienced in my life, but which I wanted to experience. And so I, I took a few lessons as a dervish. And um, it was, you know, I, I was awful at first, but I did achieve a few brief moments of clarity um, where I entered that state of flow, as the psychologists call it, where you lose track of time. And that lasted about 12 seconds, but it was a good 12 seconds. Now, one of the things about Sufi, Sufism is that um, this idea of love, I think, and... It's kind of mixed with surrender, and to me, in with mm-hmm. my peculiar cultural upbringing, I think of it as being like uh, grokking in Heinlein, Stranger in a Strange Land, which mm-hmm. is not without a, a reference here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> to kind of get something intuitively. Yes, because they're big on heart. They're always talking about heart, the Sufis are. And in, in Turkish, the, the term they use is gunul, which means literally knowing heart. And I find this fascinating. And you know, they're obviously they're not talking about the the pump, the muscle in our in our chest that's keeping us alive, but nor are they talking about the kind of sappy hallmark heart either. They're talking about something else. They are talking about this organ almost, this this intuitive sense we have about what we should do with our life, what we should do at any moment. And Dilik, my Sufi friend, was always asking me to check in with my heart. And you know, it was like tuning into a radio station. I just couldn't get a clear signal. It's all staticky. And so I got kind of frustrated because she kept saying, Eric, just check in with your heart. And I was getting nothing but static. Um, but the Sufis have this this expression that translates roughly as polishing the heart. And the idea is you do these practices, zikr, which means literally remembrance, um, forms of meditation, or even turning like the dervishes. All these practices are an attempt to polish the heart um, or to switch metaphors here to clean up that static on the dial and to get a clear signal. Um, and it appealed to me a lot because I think I suggest I suspect I'm a lot like you and that I'm very head-based and uh, not so good with the intuitive uh, part of my being. And, um, and, and so I was drawn to this mystical path which said basically just leave your brain, well, don't leave your brain at the door, but leave the left side of your brain at the door and get in touch with, with something else. Um, and, and that appealed to me more than, you know, say, Talmudic Judaism, which is all about, largely about studying and reading. I've been doing that all my life, and it's gotten me nowhere except for a crowded library of books, most of them underlined. <laughs> uh, you Having decided that uh, Sufism wasn't for you, you, you you tell us a little bit about that decision, and I guess this, had you set up your entire travel itinerary in advance, or did you just go from? Were you kind of like planning? I had it as an outline and had an idea of where I was going. Mm-hmm. Um, I had one or two other religions that didn't make the cut into the book that I did spend time with. We can talk about that in a bit. Um, uh, I had a rough outline, but I was also doing it on the fly. Mm-hmm. And Sufism 
d- did and still does appeal to me a lot, but I was determined to to sample all eight. Mm-hmm. You know, this is like a a flight of wine. I seem to have wine on the brain today. I don't know why, but this is like a flight of wine where you're, you're tasting, you're you're trying each one, and even if you like one, you're you're gonna you're gonna try the next one and, and compare. Well, tell us about uh, winnowing down the field from nine thousand nine hundred and forty-five to eight. That's a yeah. That wasn't easy. Well, it was a narrowing down process. I could start eliminating, right? So I can eliminate the religions that don't accept converts, right? Like the Zoroastrians or the Parsis, as they're known in India. Ancient, fascinating religion, but they don't accept converts. Some just seem too narrow, like Hungarian folk religion. That's not for me. Um, Some seem too broad, and I know this is controversial, and I'll probably offend the Unitarian Universalists out there, but I found their basket a little too all-encompassing, and that there was nothing for me to grasp onto. And then, uh, you know, I I wanted a a cross-section of religion, so I didn't want all variations of Christianity. I could have done that, or types of Islam. So I wanted, you know, one of the big three, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, a sliver of each one of those, a polytheistic faith such as Wicca or neo-paganism, and some non-theistics, or I guess you can call them atheistic religions, uh, such as Buddhism or Taoism, where they do not believe in a god, or at least not one supreme being. And uh, some were mainstream, like Christianity, and some like the Raelians, uh, the world's largest UFO-based religion, I guess you would say are not so mainstream. <laughs> right. So, you know, it was it was a, an imperfect list, uh, you know, by necessity, you know, and people have said to me, well, what about the Baha'i? What about the Hindus? And for various reasons, I, I couldn't fit them all in. And I went with, went with my heart. As I checked in with my heart, as the Sufis would say. <laughs> uh, who? Well, tell us who didn't make the, well, who did you visit that didn't make the book? Yeah, this is sad. The Jains. Have you heard of the Jains? I, you know, I've heard a little bit about them and I found them really fascinating. They so... are, they are. They are, um, they're in, based mainly in India. They're about six million Jains, mostly in India. That's a lot of people that, with a religion that's not very well known. Right, right. It's, um, they're best known for the concept of ahimsa, which means literally nonviolence, an extreme form of nonviolence, so extreme that Jain monks uh, will wear a face mask over their mouth um, so as not to accidentally swallow a bug and kill them or so that their hot breath doesn't kill the microbes around their face. Um, we're talking seriously nonviolent here. Um, Jains will not become farmers, for instance. Why? Um, harming the plants? Harming the insects. You have to kill bugs in order to farm. Um, And they won't eat certain root vegetables because they're pulled up from the ground and insects are killed when they're pulled up from the ground. Now, not all Jains are like this. Um, They don't, any more than all Jews, keep kosher. But but that's the idea, at least. And I spent um, time with them in India. And I'm quite fond of them. But I found that their beliefs, practices are somewhat similar to Buddhism, which I spent a lot of time on in the book. And... um, it just, it's a bit ironic that the least violent religion that I explored got the axe in the end, but... Um, <laughs> Not for you, really. <laughs> yeah, but um, but uh, they Mahavira, the founder of Jainism, uh, was a contemporary of the Buddha. They lived at the same time. Uh, mm. Probably didn't meet, but they did live in the same time. And so there are many similarities with Buddhism, and I wanted to have eight distinct chapters. Now I have to ask, what about Scientology? 
Oh, you know, people in California seem to ask that question a lot. Why is that? <laughs> um, uh, there's a lot of Scientologists in California, and it's an interesting. It's a fascinating. Uh, well, the, 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 the short answer is I didn't want to go there. Mm. And by that, I mean I didn't want this to be a book that was all about controversy, mm. that mm-hmm. was about the controversy surrounding religion. And to be honest, whatever side you fall on, how can you not write about how can you write about Scientology and not dive into or get sucked into that controversy? Um, the, the whole chapter would end up being about the controversy inevitably because it, it's so divisive. And um, I didn't want to go there. I, I made a conscious effort to focus on the best of religion mm-hmm. in a way. I mean, I'm pretty upfront in the beginning that there's a lot of bad religion out there. Um, religion leads to violence. It, it motivates people to violence. Um, I've seen the sort of negative effects of religion around the world as a foreign correspondent for NPR uh, in various places around the world. And that's not what this book is about. If you want a book that shows how corrosive relig- religion can be around the world, then this is not the book for you. Um, I I made a conscious effort to, to sort of wade past the hypocrisy and the corrosiveness and try to find at the core what makes these good and worthwhile? What is there here for me and what is there here for all of us? And I think you succeed admirably. One of the your, I think, mentors, spiritual and literary mentors for this book is a man named William James, wrote a book called The Varieties of Religious Experience. Right. Talk about reading that book and just give us a little précis about James himself. Well, James was a bit of a depressive like me. Um, and I think we were similar in a fair number of ways. Um, he lived 100 years ago, though, more than 100 years ago. Uh, and he was a philosopher, a psychologist, and really the first person to take religion seriously. Um, by that, I mean to take it seriously as a field of study. And it's interesting that he called his most famous book, The Varieties of Religious Experience, not the varieties of religions or the varieties of religious ritual or religious theology, but religious experience. And that's what he was interested in. Um, he did had all these case studies, talked to all these people who had these mystical experiences. And the thing is, though, he writes about them both scientifically and also, I think, empathetically, uh, that he... he well, empathetically, maybe it's not the, quite the right word because James was not able to fully experience these mystical states himself, but you could tell that he wanted to. So I guess he was sympathetic in that way. He really uh, was somewhat envious of these people he wrote about. He, I describe him as being like sort of a someone who would love to travel around the world, but is sort of confined to their to their living room and forced to just read other people's uh, versions of, of their travels. And so I, I related to James for a number of reasons, and I think his focus on the experience of religion as opposed to belief or, or ritual um, is a good one. And I think it's one that we sort of lost in this country. We're so focused on belief. What do you believe? What are your religious beliefs? And we forget about, well, what are you actually experiencing? What are you doing? What is your practice? When I was you know, hanging out with the Buddhists, nobody cared what my beliefs were. They wanted to know what was my practice, what was I doing, what was I experiencing. That's what matters. Well, I think that's uh, that's clearly the focus of this book is the is your experience. Yeah, and you do a great job of conveying that. Um, I, I would guess that going in, if you would, you said call call yourself a Confucianist. I, I would say you might be the high. Pr- priest of the first church of anxiety 
Oh, that's good. Can I use that? I think I, I, yeah. I could. Would I be eligible for tax deductible status if I started the first church of anxiety? Yeah. We have lots of members, I think, because I know there are lots of anxious people out there. Um, yeah. Um, so I try to be as honest as possible. I mean, I feel that that's that's priority one for any writer, whatever you're undertaking, is honesty. And you do a good job uh, on a prose level of just crafting sentence after sentence that we want, we read and we go, oh, my God, that's great. I want to go back and read that again. It's really, you know, smart and pithy. And does this stuff flow off the tip of your pen when you're out there in Kathmandu and sitting on a ledge? Yeah, it comes out perfectly every time. It's the first time. It's amazing. I'm being facetious if you haven't picked up on that. <laughs> Never trust a writer who get, tells you that. It just comes out perfectly the first time. No, it's extremely painful. It's extremely difficult. It's several drafts, several versions. It starts off as rough notes in a moleskin notebook and then is transferred because my, my notes are perishable because my handwriting's so atrocious, son of a doctor and all that. So I've got about 48 hours to get them out of the notebook and onto the screen. And as I put them on the screen, I refine my thoughts and then I refine them further and write rough drafts. And then I tear that up and write another. Um, it's it, that I think most writers will tell you that's... That's basically the process. It's, it's painful, and it's a process of revising at least as much as it is of writing. Well, I think that your each of the pieces in this book um, is a really beautifully constructed piece of writing, and there's each has gives us characters. You give us yourself and, and your little slivers of experience. You never... You only kind of get little bits. You get bites off the buffet. You never really get a full plate. Well, what do you mean exactly? <laughs> In terms of the re- religious experience. Well, you know, I suppose I'm a bit sensitive about this because uh, I don't, you know, I, I'm, I'm sensitive to the criticism of saying, well, you're, you're a dabbler. You know, you didn't really go deep. Um, um, I, no, it's, I don't think, I think you try. I try, um, and I try to get to the essence of mm-hmm. what these religions are about. Um, as an outsider, but as a curious um, participant observer, I would say. And I read an awful lot about each religion, and I tried to find a person, usually a convert to one mm-hmm. of the, each of these faiths, who could sort of act as my translator. So realizing that, you know, spending some time in Kathmandu with the Buddhists, um, even several months, you're, you're just going to get a taste, as you say. But if I meet someone like uh, like James, James Hopkins, a, a oh, friend of mine now. Oh, he's a great character. <laughs> he is. And he's a, former, uh, he's a former investment banker from Malibu who gave it all up when he had earned enough money and moved to Kathmandu and became a full-time Buddhist, essentially. And I, I admire him a lot because not many investment bankers, when they've made a barrel of money, you know, make a decision like that. And he has really dived deep into Buddhism. And he, because he came from my world, not investment banking, but, you know, the secular, skeptical world that I inhabit, he's able to translate and say, you know, like about reincarnation, like, you know, why it makes sense or where he has problems with it. And and so his struggle, I can see my my skepticism reflected in him, but he's he's moved past it in many ways. Well, one of the things I think that's really fun is that you travel to all these places only to meet uh, expatriate Americans, <laughs> James and Wayne I, from Staten Island. <laughs> the great Wayne of the Staten great Island. Wayne. Oh, he made it on the cover of the book. Yeah, I was looking for a— Oh, that's him on the cover? Well, no, no. Oh. His uh, his name is on the cover. He's in uh, right oh. underneath the Buddha, oh. Muhammad, and Jesus. Yeah. Um, as different paths to God. Um, 
Well, Buddha, Muhammad, and Jesus are in good company with Wayne because he is a great man. Um, I was looking for a wizened Tibetan Lama to teach me meditation in Kathmandu. I mean, I'm going to fly all that way. You know, I want I want the real thing. That's what I was thinking. But I couldn't find any. And I asked people, where are the Lamas? And apparently they're all in California, I was told. They have followed the money, or followed the students at least. And someone finally said to me, look, you should really work with Wayne. I'm like, well, which part of Tibet is Wayne from? And they said, oh, the Staten Island part. Um, Wayne is uh, an American, born Jewish like myself, but has been living in Kathmandu for some 30 years, Has uh, is an accomplished meditator and Buddhist, and is a translator because he speaks my language, um, East Coast liberal Jewish language, you know, and and so when we're sitting on his roof attempting to meditate, well, he's meditating, I'm attempting he has some idea of the real craziness going on inside my head because it was not that long ago going on inside his head too. And and these people can act as translators, and I find them just invaluable when you're out there. One of the things I think that uh, you do do very well is convey this sense of honest yearning, really trying to um, uh, grok, wrap your brain around these various religions that you that you you know, go and visit. And, and I, I think that the that kind of approach is, is really engaging for us as readers because it, 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 it mirrors our kind of reading experience. Yeah, and I'm, I'm looking at it with fresh eyes, and I really, I would say I went in with an open mind. I went in with an open mind, but of course also with preconceptions, and I'm upfront about those. Mm-hmm. Islam, we have preconceptions, uh, something like witchcraft, you know, there's always baggage we bring to it. We have to, I think, be honest about that baggage. I mean, here's my perception of Wicca or witchcraft. I think they're all a bit nuts. But I'm willing to change that point of view. I'm willing to discard that baggage, um, trade it for new baggage or something. And and so I, it was not my, uh, my goal was not to poke fun at any of these faiths. And even ones that we would consider really, well, kind of wacky, such as the Raelians, the, the UFO people. Um, it was funny things happened uh, when I attended their seminar in Las Vegas, and some pretty crazy things happened too. But I found there were object lessons in there and that they are good people and that they are searching like the rest of us. And I honestly was looking for the best of all these religions. What is there here for us? Is there anything worthwhile or is it all just a bunch of nonsense? And so many of my friends can just see the nonsense and don't see the wisdom. And and I was determined to get past that. Well, I think the way you do this as a writer is twofold. You give us, with each place you go, you give us uh, real characters who are involved in the religion that we can that we can sympathize with, and you give us a story too, and I think that religions are are all story based. Right, the story of the Buddha, mm-hmm. for instance. Um, it's it's a wonderful story. It's about a, a spoiled rich kid, basically, um, who grew up in a palace, and whose parents, his father in particular, shielded him from the suffering out there. Sounds like a lot of people today, um, but when the Buddha Siddhartha at the time. Um, snuck out and saw the suffering in the world, saw a corpse, saw a sick person. Um, he he knew that that was his fate, too, and he went out into the world. Um, 
And that's a story. That's a story we can all relate to. The problem, I think, becomes when we take these stories as historic fact, which they may or may not be, and then we find holes in those stories, and then we declare their religion all a bunch of nonsense, when really they are myths in the way that, like, Joseph Campbell meant a myth, something that tells us how to walk in the world, um, which is not the same as a scientific fact, but is valuable nonetheless. Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. Yeah, yeah it's it's stories as a way to define ourselves. Right, but do you know what I mean about the, what happens in the in, in the country today? Mm-hmm. Is those people who are adamantly anti-religious say, "Oh, virgin birth—that's so absurd. How could that? That's impossible. That's that religion's nonsense." Or or these other creation myths. Um, you know, I believe it's his name is Terry Eagleton, a, a literary critic, has a great line about religion. He he says that just because we have to say that we have science now so we don't need religion is like saying because we have the toaster we no longer need checkoff. You know, I mean they are serving <laughs> two different purposes. Um and uh, I, I love that line because I, I I think it's it's true. And the problem becomes when we confuse checkoff and the toaster and, and think that they're trying to serve the same purpose. They're not. Well, religions um, and those kind of uh, creation myths and stories, uh, I think, are great externalizations of internal conflicts that can't be portrayed any other way. Right. Right. They are sort of psychological. They're psychodramas, really, aren't they? Yeah. Before that term existed, you know, the the, the Hindus are famous for this. The, um, the Bhagavad Gita is a story like that. Uh, all these Hindu epic myths. Um Buddhism is a bit more pared down. Alan Watts, the British philosopher, once called Buddhism uh, Hinduism stripped for export, which I think is a great line. Um, I, I think that that's why Buddhism appeals to more Americans than Hinduism is because it's it's lean and it's you know it's just do these. Here's your list of you know your four noble truths. Here's your eight noble eightfold path, and you know it's we, we like lists in this country, don't we? You know, follow these eight lists and these things, and then you will not suffer as much. And, and that appeals to us, I think. You know, as I was reading this book, too, I was just struck by the importance. Every religion that you examine, that you look at, that you immerse yourself in, it's absolutely critical to embrace paradox. They all have a paradox in, in them, around them, at the core of them. They do. And this drives some people crazy. Because um, religious people will often say things that just sound nonsensical. Now, Wayne, the great Wayne of Staten Island, is one of those people. Um, I would say, Wayne, you know, what is the first step toward meditating? And he would pause and then say in his sagest voice, um, last steps are often first steps. Um, Taoism, huge paradoxes in Taoism, um, the Chinese religion. The Tao Te Ching, their sacred text, essentially, is just one long contradiction. You know, They have the idea of Wu Wei, of actionless action. Um, how can you have actionless action? Um, and we're not so good in the West with these contradictions. Uh, in the East, in India in particular, they're better with them. They can hold two competing thoughts in their head at the same time without their head exploding. Um, we are more binary, I think. We need to know it's either this or it's that. And that, I'm just thinking this out loud, that extends to religion in general. It's either all good or it's all nonsense. And, you know, if if the guru owns 99 Rolls Royces, then there is no wisdom to be found in that guru. Well, maybe not. You know, maybe he's a flawed person who also has some wise things to say. 
Does this make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. And anybody who owns 99 Rolls Royces probably has some wisdom. It's, you know, <laughs> to get <laughs> You don't end up with 99 Rolls Royces. You got to have something going for you. That's a good point. I never thought of it that way. Now, oh, once as you uh, looked at these various religions, also there are some personal journeys for you. And I think uh, in the France, your visits with the Franciscan friars in the Bronx was certainly one. And yeah. that was, it was, uh, the modulation of the writing in this book, I think, is really masterful and understated. Um, and that's one place where I think that you do something that's a little bit different from the rest. Right. And um, it was hard writing that chapter on Christianity on the Franciscans because here is a religion that uh, I don't know that much about. Um, my reader is going to know more than I do, while the others I probably knew more than they did. Um, so that put me in an uncomfortable situation. But again, I, I had to be honest about it um, and just be upfront and say, look, I'm sitting in the South Bronx in a chapel with the Franciscan friars um, saying mass and attempting to cross myself, which I just was terrible at. And my hands are going every which way. Um, and I'm sort of confronting Christianity in a way um, that I just had skirted most of my life. And I've also got this baggage. You know, I think of some Christians as being fundamentalists, not being open-minded. And I was blown away by the Franciscans. I was really impressed with how they walked the walk. You know, they're taking these vows of chastity, poverty, and obedience. Doesn't sound like a lot of fun, does it? But they, uh, they're happy. <laughs> and they have a kind of mischievous quality to themselves as well. They're, they're sort of the merry pranksters of Christianity, as was their, their founder, St. Francis. He was a... He was a bit crazy, as most saints are, you know, and he went to extremes. And And um, G.K. Chesterton, the British writer, has a great line in his biography of St. Francis. He says, here was a man who went down, down, down until one day, inexplicably, he started to go up. And most of us never get to go up because we never went that far down. It's that idea that you really have to hit bottom. And St. Francis did. And... Uh, and then he started to go up. So, you you also did visit uh, the Raelians, and this uh, is I was a, waiting for the Raelian question. Well, Every, people were some people were especially the Californians are fascinated with the Raelians. Go ahead. They're a lot of fun. You have they are. They're a religion based on fun, and they were the they'd be the first people to say that we're about fun and shouldn't life be fun? And they're putting the fun back in religion. Yeah. Well, tell us a little bit about your visit with them. Um, okay. Well, the Raelians are the world's largest UFO-based religion. Mm -hmm. There's more than one. There are several. Um, they have some 100,000 members in 80 countries. They, for some reason, attract a lot of French Canadians and a lot of uh, former Catholics for reasons that will soon become clear. Their creation myth is that uh, we were created not by God but by the Elohim, aliens, from another planet 25,000 years ago. And they created us. They created all life on this planet. And they created us for essentially one reason, uh, pleasure, to enjoy, to enjoy our bodies, to enjoy sensory pleasure, uh, to love each other also. But there's a particular emphasis on pleasure. And um, so I attended uh, one of their happiness academies in Las Vegas. And, you know, I should say that, you know, no one hit me up for money. No one proselytized to me. Um... But some crazy things happen there. It's all in the book. I mean, I, I did shave my legs and dress like a woman, but yeah, it's all there. <laughs> in the interest of research, to be clear. As a, as a writer, 
as you go work through this. This book, in a sense, what's interesting about reading this book is we get to kind of be with you as you work through your own, you know, uh, process of trying to figure out what is what's going on here, what you want exactly. Yeah. That and you know, do I want you. pleasure? For yeah. instance, um, let's just talk about the the pleasure principle, as it were. So we think the Raelians are what? Wacky, and we don't think they're a real religion, not just because of the UFO part, but because of this pleasure part. You mm-hmm. know, if they had all this wacky UFO idea, but but said, and we don't believe in sex, you must remain chaste, we would say, oh, that sounds like a religion, doesn't it? But because <laughs> they say, go ahead, you know, and they sponsor things like Go Topless Day uh, in August and uh, other events, and, and because they put this emphasis on pleasure, we think it can't be a real religion. Now, why is that? Who say if God created us, he created us with the ability to experience pleasure. So why do so many religions, you know, say basically no? You know, it's not just uh, Christianity. Um, Jains and Hindus, uh, the the idea of chastity is is in many religions. So um, ultimately, I conclude that the, the reason, the best reason is that there are there are pleasures much greater than sexual or sensual pleasures, and that religion is saying, you will get distracted by these, and there's something much better there. It's like you walk into a restaurant, and you see, as soon as you walk in, this table laid out with these nice appetizers, and they look really good, so you just stuff your face. But really, there's this table down on the other end that has the most amazing food that just makes that other stuff look like McDonald's, but you never get there because you're just waylaid by this table. You're stuffing your face with these appetizers, and that's what religious teachers are, that's the idea at least, is that there are greater pleasures and you get distracted by the more earthly ones. Now, as as a, as a you finish this, your your journey, you returned to, a sense, your, your own religion. You had started out telling us that you were a gastronomical Jew. Right. It's all about the bagels and lox and they could filter the fish and, and that was about it. We were... That's a funny way of saying we were basically secular. You know, we mm-hmm. were what they call high holiday Jews, which means you show up once or twice a year at synagogue, you punch your clock, and and then you get back to your bagels and locks and your neuroses. Did your did your experience with the Kabbalah change that? It did. It did. And and I I have to be honest in that I was uncomfortable writing about Judaism. That's why I saved it for last. Uh, and I kind of wanted to cross it off. I was like, I, I've got to write about Judaism. I was born Jewish. Um, and I wanted to cross it off and then get back to the more interesting exotic religions like Buddhism and Taoism. But I found uh, in Kabbalah in Israel, in a town called Svat, uh, something. I found it mainly not really in the teachings of Kabbalah, which I find fascinating but confusing, um, but through the people I met mm-hmm. who are Kabbalists and who seem really happy happier than any Jew I've ever met before <laughs> and uh, and who have sort of cobbled together a kind of freelance Judaism or I guess free-form Judaism, you would call it. Um, you know, I would see people walking down the street, a woman with her head covered in a scarf wearing a long skirt, as Orthodox Jewish women do, but with a yoga mat slung over her shoulder. That was Svat in a, in a nutshell. And uh, Or I met this man, David Friedman, uh, been living there for 30 years, and he, he welcomes the Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath, not by going to the synagogue, but by going on a walking meditation in the woods outside of town. And I joined him for that experience. And why not? 
you know, that, uh, that is a wonderful way to begin this day of rest, this sanctuary in time, by going for a walking meditation. Is it Buddhist practice? Yes, but it also is a, a Kabbalistic one. Uh, ultimately, it, it seems that a, a lot of this uh, focuses down on, on stories and people. Yeah, I guess you're right. I never thought of it that way. Um, Thomas Merton, the, the Trappist monk, very wise man, um, spoke about the, the voice of the stranger and how that often it's the voice of the stranger that speaks to us. And I think I realize now that was the case for me on this journey. It was the voices of these strangers, um, of James Hopkins, the, the Buddhist, of Wayne, of Staten Island, and the voice of Yadida, a Kabbalist I met in in Israel. Um, Sandy. And Sandy. Mm-hmm. A, and he lives in Hawaii but has a, a Chinese soul <laughs> and goes to China sometimes several times a year on these Taoist pilgrimages and sort of cultivates her chi. Um, all these people um, spoke to me. And uh, I guess sometimes that is more important than any theology or any text. I mean, a book, even a really good book, is kind of a dead thing. It just sits there. The words sit on the page. But people are living proof that these religions can work. And and they're not saints. That's the thing. I mean, Sandy wrestles with Taoist concepts. She doesn't get it all. Uh, James Hopkins and Kathmandu doesn't get everything there is to get in Buddhism. He still has a problem with the concept of reincarnation. It doesn't quite make sense to him. But he keeps going. And so when because these people are imperfect, like me... I can relate to them. And I realize that if they are getting something out of these religions, if it's working for them and they're not saints, well, it might work for me and the rest of us as well. It it seems, too, that we think of religion and spirituality in terms of the individual, but in this book, it's it's about the people. It's it's something that happens between people, I think, in many ways. Mm, What do you mean exactly? Well, I'm... All of these experiences that you have, and some of them are just you. Uh, oh, I see what you're saying. It, so it's not just like me up on a mountaintop meditating. No, it's that's, interacting. It's it's conversations exactly. a lot because well, I like to talk, as you probably picked up on. I'm a I'm a big fan of the art of conversation, and yeah, I, I did I did distill a lot of wisdom in conversation with people, but not. You know, not a hit-and-run journalistic interview. I don't even use the term interview anymore. I don't. I didn't interview these people. I had conversations with them, multiple conversations over long periods of time, over tea and occasionally wine and some other uh, indeterminate liqueurs. And, uh, and we talked a lot. And I kept probing and saying, you know, yeah, what about this? What about this? Um, you know, at some point you have to stop talking, and there is a point in the book where I finally shut up. You know, in in China, uh, I get I get quiet, um, and and there is value in in silence. But you know, you work with what you have, and for me, I am a very verbal person, and in sitting down in conversation with a wise, relatable person like Yadida or James or others, for me, I, I get I get a lot out of that, and. Um, and there is such a thing as deep conversation, which unfortunately we're, we're losing touch with that, but there is, and, and I found a lot of it out there. I've been speaking with Eric Weiner. His new book is Man Seeks God. Thank you for joining me, Eric. Thank you. This was, this was a wonderful conversation.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.